0: Good morning, good morning on this Tuesday, the 12th of October. What did you do this weekend? Uh, And how did you get home from wherever you went and whatever you did? For lots of people, the weekend and then the three-day weekend. And for some people still today, uh, because luggage is still catching up with travelers. For lots of people, the weekend turned into a travel, I don't know, pick your pick your word here, snarl, nightmare. Um, It has yet to fully work itself out. I am, of course, talking about Southwest Airlines and the uh, pilot and air traffic controller and baggage handler sick out um, in protest of vaccine mandates and other work-related things as well. Um, And I, I imagine that there are At least some folks. And here I'm thinking more broadly about the challenges that we're facing culturally when we have the expectation of something like heading to the airport and hopping on a plane that takes off on time and lands on time and our baggage arrives on time and we then get to our appointed things on time uh, and everything traditionally, traditionally works like clockwork. And when it doesn't, you know, we... uh, we keep track of those things, you know, when planes take off on time or don't or don't land on time, those kinds of things. We've obsessed about them in the past here in America. Um, and we have thought to ourselves in terms of. Let's say there not being enough people to do the jobs that require doing that we could live at uh, the convenience level that we've been living at. We tend to think these things happen in other countries, not America um, Other countries deal with, you know, not enough truckers to get things places or other countries deal with um, people going on strike or work slowdowns. I mean, other places deal with this. These happen. These things happen in other countries, not America. Empty shelves, rolling closures at restaurants. I don't know about you, uh, but where I live um, you will either see a sign on the door that says that only the drive through is open or you will see a cone in the drive through indicating that only the dining room is open and when you go in there 's nobody to take your order. You have to now order at a humanless kiosk uh, long lines waiting to check out everywhere uh, so here are a couple of thoughts: patience and planning ahead are are now going to be the order of things. There is not going to be last minute shopping that that if you are a wait till the 24th of December to get everything you need or wait till the 23rd of December and order it all on Amazon. uh, Yeah, you're going to be celebrating Christmas with a little promissory notes, patience and planning ahead and going without and delayed gratification. Those are all now a part of this American life. Um, one example would be gas prices. And and the list is very long. And where you live, the list might be different than it is where I live. Um, apologies on signs outside of drive throughs I saw one yesterday. Um, you know, we're as disappointed as you are that we can no longer get baby back ribs. Okay, so I'm just saying that our our sense of everything being available, everything being available, and being available immediately, and being available immediately at a relatively inexpensive price, yeah, that that is not this American life. And so I think that as Christians, conversations about patience and planning ahead and going without and delayed gratification, those are going to be the kinds of conversations that not only do we as Christians need to be you know, prepared to have, but we need to be prepared to teach those things in a culture that has been um, marked by consumerism and immediacy and no delayed gratification whatsoever. All right, Nick Pitts is up next. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement, and he has, although challenged to get home, he has returned from his honeymoon, and we are going to uh, next celebrate marriage. Yep, that's up next here on Moors with Carmen. Yeah. Oh Nick Pitts. Good morning. Good
1: morning.
0: How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Congratulations. Thank
1: you so much. After I think I've been married now. I'm a wily veteran of nine days of marriage. (laughs) And um, and I can say that I am fully convinced that I am I'm out of my league. One, she is brilliant, too. But I question her decision making skills to put up with me. But that's That's uh the point.
0: That's okay. The two the two together make a beautiful one and um may may God be what not only has drawn you together but the one who holds you together draws you up individually closer and closer to himself that will always yield every day a marriage that is more tightly knit together and so yeah our our words of blessing our prayers upon you God's grace you know all the things that are sufficient uh, for for living in a world that doesn't make sense but living in it together with a spouse who knows the lord and loves you dearly so it's oh, yeah. it's great yeah. we're, we're, we're we're thrilled for you
1: Thank you. I was telling Paul earlier, um, we were one of those that experienced a little bit of the Southwest troubles um, as we came back. And so uh, I was tested. We left the honeymoon and it was tested as soon as we got back to the States with patience and long suffering. Trying to was uh, flight was canceled a couple of times, but back in Dallas and so grateful to be with you this morning.
0: We're so glad to have you. All right. So um, ran across a little research from Pew this week. Uh, a growing percentage of the U.S. population are now living alone without a spouse or a partner. You you now are throwing all of this, uh, you know, off. But uh, Pew reports this. Americans' marital and living arrangements have changed considerably over the past 30 years. Let's talk about this.
1: Yeah, so we've got – there's two really – The factors that are happening here, and I I would argue that there are at least three contributing factors to what we're seeing now with one, individuals that are living alone, and two, individuals that are living with their parents. There there are more people that are living with their parents, according to Pew Research from 2019, than there have been in history uh, that are uh, American adults, so 18 and above. And now we're beginning to see a rise of individuals that are living alone right now. We've known the, the rate, uh, the, the married, average age of marriage here in the U.S. has increased exponentially from 19, almost 40 years ago, to now upwards of 30 for men. Um, and, and so naturally that just causes us to think, what, what, are, what are some of the causes that are causing some of this? Um, and one, I think you've got to look at what divorce did in the 80s and 90s um, to this generation that is looking to get married. Divorce was skyrocketing during this time. And thankfully, it is growing lower and lower in number. But it's caused hesitation among individuals, uh, millennials, Gen Zers to want to get married in the first place, one, to not just get married and live with their partner, but even commit to one another. They're living together, cohabitating as rising. Two, the factor you've got to consider is waiting on jobs. Um, and, more and more, there used to be a day that you would you would hear stories from previous generations of getting married and toughing it out with your partner. You had a TV stand that was a box, you ate, uh, bologna sandwiches every night for meals. This, this, this idea of toughing it out. Um, and so you just have now increasingly individuals don't want to tough it out. They want to develop as persons and be prepared to go into this. And so they're, they're not just wanting to live on bologna sandwiches. And so you've got that piece. And then three, you've got individuals, it's very clear, that are just waiting on housing, um, uh, that they desire to have the house, to have everything ready, not only the jobs, but also their house ready, waiting for that spouse instead of just kind of making, uh, working together and developing a life together. They want to develop a life and then invite someone into that. I think those are at least three factors that we're seeing on the rise of living
0: alone. Yeah, I would add to that um a couple of things. Um one would be the the reversal we've seen in terms of um men and women uh who go to college and the reversal of that and yet people still looking for uh looking to spend their life with somebody who has a similar level of um of educational and and worldly experience. And so as the Percentage of people has flipped you know it 's gone from you know sixty forty men in college versus women to now women in college versus men. Um, I think that when we talk about then how those folks when they come to a marrying age uh, find one another and respect one another and have reasonable expectations one of the other and, and roles and responsibilities and all of that, I think that 's complicating things in America. Um, I also think that the devolution of marriage itself, the devaluing of it in the culture, the redefinition of it uh, by the Supreme Court. I think that it's not just divorce um, that has uh, sort of devalued marriage or confused the uh, the issue of marriage in the minds of emerging generations. It's also the culture itself and how strange What a strange place we have arrived uh, at in terms of how we understand marriage in the culture today. So, I just think there's a lot of contributing causes. It's definitely worthy of conversation. Uh, Maybe we have a two minute reflection on the consequences. Obviously, one would be there's just not going to be very many kids who uh, are born into and then grow up in um, traditional families.
1: Oh, you two that you made two incredible points one just look at uh, women for example women that do not go to college on average uh, average age of marriage with no college education is around 19 years old when they do go to college average age of marriage is 27 years old so we do we do know from the data that college is a significant factor and in, in the at least in At least we're seeing it as a delaying factor of individuals that are getting married. And then two, the impact of it. We've continued to see a rise of individuals that one grew up in a a nuclear family household. Today, upwards of forty one percent of the kids that are born today are born into a a single parent household. That's just it's just skyrocketed over the past forty years. And I, I think if we'll continue and we know that when kids are, the best environment for kids is that stable two-family household.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to return to our conversation with Nick Pitts in just a moment. Um, I'm going to ask him what he thinks Nancy Pelosi talked about with the Pope in her private audience. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lone. All right. uh, Nancy Pelosi, um, Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States of America, um, uh, she professes to be a Roman Catholic. She recently had an audience with the Pope, and I'm imagining that was an interesting conversation. Nick?
1: what I would do to be a fly on the Vatican wall for this particular uh, conversation. Yet increasingly, the Speaker of the House, especially Speaker Pelosi, has just been earning um, uh, quite an audience with international leaders from the Pope to the British Prime Minister to the Indian Prime Minister, just has been uh, very much jet-setting, as well as um, um, using her office and her authority to meet with some of these world leaders. I would imagine one, we, uh, the two things that come to mind that I, I know that had to be topics of conversation. One had to center probably around abortion rights and uh, the ability for U.S. politicians to advocate for pro-choice positions and still receive the Eucharist if they are Catholic and in good standing with the church. We know that that's been an issue over the past Years, but has really sparked uh, uh, an uptick in interest over the past few months. And then probably climate change too, with the, um, with the Pope uh, joining with the Archbishop of Canterbury and other world leaders last month to really press on the idea that we have a responsibility in regards to climate change to be good stewards of the environment that God has called us to domineer and cultivate.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those um, stories to watch. It's interesting that you observe uh, that the Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States um, has an increasingly high profile um, as a world leader. And I wonder going forward um, if that's because there's, there's, at least from the perspective of the world, more stability in that position in terms of American leadership than there is stability um, in, in the U.S. presidency. Like, I just wonder, I wonder what's going on there, because obviously something's going on there. I want to talk with you about Bill, um, Bill Maher. Um, for people listening who don't know him, he is, um, I'll describe him this way, and then, Nick, you can correct uh, my assessment. Um, he he's, uh, he's a comedic commentator who has a show on HBO that is wildly popular, um, and he is not a believer. So are all of those things true?
1: I think yes. I think that would be a very that would be an accurate description of Bill Maher.
0: Okay, so comedic commentator with a show on HBO, which means that um, it's often inappropriate. Um, and he offered a monologue uh, the other night, which went viral, and then has produced all kinds of follow-on commentary. He he describes um, he describes it this way that it's a slow-moving coup. So what is he talking about and why are other people talking about Bill Maher?
1: You know, there's a... There's a growing contingent that are increasingly concerned uh, as of late with the Eastman memo that came out. And The Eastman memo was written by Mr. Eastman, um, who was a Trump ally during um, late December, early January, when he was attempting to um, uh, keep his office and the legal measures that could be taken by then-President Trump to stay in office and what uh, then-Vice President Pence would be able to do. And uh, Bill Maher and others have begun to highlight this, um, this memo and talk about the lengths in which a particular party ha- is going to be able to uh, keep power regardless of whatever we the people decide every four years on in November. And so um, it's a And, you know, it's it's really and there's been others that have picked up on this as well. I'm trying to recall the Substack email that I read the other day that described the Eastman memo as well as um, what happened in the 2020 election and comparing it to what's happened, what happened with Democrats in 1860 with regards to um, before the outbreak of the Civil War. And it's just a um, it's a it's a very bleak. It's a very dark view of what could be happening. Um, and uh, it's just, it's causing a stir, one might say, online right now.
0: Yeah, I think that um, there there's going to be an ongoing challenge. We're going to see the language Civil War um, more and more. It trended on Twitter, um, following not only Bill Maher's monologue, but um, but following uh, a particular rally that the former president, Donald Trump, um, had in Iowa. I think that there are there are going to be um, increasing conversations about this. And I think that Christians, first of all, we need to be very, very careful with our language um, and we need to be careful with historical references. Um, yeah. I don't think that references to Hitler are helpful. I don't think uh, references to Nazism are helpful. I don't think um, references to the Civil War are necessarily um helpful i think that we are a people who have lost our ability to talk well with one another to consider the concerns of others um and then to be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to live peaceably with everyone like i i think we have arrived at that point i don't think we've arrived at the point of civil war
1: you know i I completely agree with you. And I, I think that we've always had heated conversations around politics. I, I think that's an inevitable part of life because poli- behind every political decision, it impacts a person. Every policy has a person behind it. And so, of course, there's going to be this back and forth. What I think has happened is that we have elevated, there have been some contentions that have elevated politics in the ele- left to a higher degree now. And one might say, I, I was thinking about First uh, Corinthians 15 when I was reading it, and we've elevated politics to that of first importance. And I I just don't think that's the case. I know that's not the case. What is of utmost importance in our knowledge is knowing that of Christ and him crucified. And when we elevate our politics to individual, to gospel level issues, you know, to, to everyday politics, to gospel level issues, of course, we're going to see this type of animated and heated talk because we think we're fighting for life and death on these matters, when in reality, at the end of the day the kingdom of God will move forward. We know that God started the good work in us and we'll see it to completion. And we know our mission isn't to win over political points, but is it is, is to extend the kingdom of God by being a fragrant aroma of Christ so that we might be able to testify testifying about his goodness and his grace to those who were once dying that are now alive in him. That's where our that's where our mo- our biggest energy should be. That's what is of first importance. And when we elevate politics to that level we then regard the enemy as as someone that is that is a, a, a true enemy. Um, but we have we have to remember our, our our fights aren't against the powers and principalities; they aren't against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of the other world.
0: Yeah, I heard a guy um, here locally. You'll appreciate this, uh, being from Tennessee. He's like the chassis of our social truck cannot bear the weight of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thing true. So yeah, right, we're, you're right. Stuck. Like
0: our, yeah, we're stuck. Our, our, um, we're trying to, we're, we're trying to carry in a political conversation the weight of something. Uh, that it, the it, politics just wasn't designed to carry the weight of the kinds of conversations, um, that we're trying to have, and we're having badly with one another, or we're not even having at all. We're having in isolation, um, from one another, and we're having them in these silos of, uh, of just self-reflective often very congratulatory others condemning um, rhetoric it's very very challenging
1: yeah, the, the idea of bearing with one another it's h- impossible to bear with one another if you think every issue is worthy of die- every hill is worth dying on um yeah. you you can't, bear, you can't bear with one another in that and i don't it's not healthy when we begin to see every issue is of first importance because then it turns uh, even mundane it turns even mundane trips to the grocery store into life or death situations. You're, you're battling, you're at the battle of the bulge when in reality you're just trying to choose between creamy and smooth peanut butter. We need to de-escalate some of these conversations and recognize that it's going to be okay to disagree because we still agree on matters of first importance.
0: You can have all the smooth, creamy peanut butter if, <laughs> if I can have the crunchy. There we go. And then the if I ever food need, food. and then if I ever need creamy peanut butter to make something, I bring a crunchy jar over and give you one, and and it'll all work out. Like, right? It's okay. not of first importance.
1: I would use the crunchy peanut butter uh, for the animals of the world because oh, there you <laughs> go. That's <laughs> your never favorite. Eat, never even contemplate eating that stuff.
0: See, there you go. All right. We'll have a conversation about mayonnaise on the next, uh, on the next oh time boy. you're here. Because I bet there's, I know, I bet you're a Duke's guy. All right. Nick Pitts, we'll be back. Thank you so much for being with us today. We have loved our time together.
1: It's so great to be with you, Connie. All
0: right. got to take a break for Knowing God with Greg Laurie. All right, there is forecasting and then there are people who speak uh, prophetically. I want you to consider the difference today as you are going to hear um, headlines uh, related to the Pentagon's software chief, Nicholas Chilean, uh, who has resigned um, because he has, I don't know, would the word be forecast or would the word be speaking prophetically? He says China has already won the global tech war in fifteen. 20 years from now um, we will see it all come to pass right now it's really a done deal he says we have no competing fighting chance against china so is that uh is that hyperbole coming from the pentagon's first ever software chief we're going to talk about china and china's uh shenanigans next with luke moon we'll be right back Have a kid who's unmotivated, irresponsible, and immature? Parents, it's
1: possible you're contributing to this cycle of defeat. Hi, I'm Mark
2: Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The longer a parent holds on to responsibilities that should be gradually transferred to a child, the longer it'll take for that child to mature. You see, when you hold back real-life responsibilities, it just enables immaturity in your teen. Mom and dad, your teen doesn't need more friends or more stuff. They need a parent, a parent who's willing to trust their child with responsibility, who won't rescue a child when consequences come, and who doesn't flinch when it's time to let the rope out. Is that you? Start today. Be the parent your son and daughter needs. Want to bring Mark to your church or community?
1: Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. men will bow down before the throne, and at his
2: feet they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around.
0: Luke Moon joins us again. Uh, he works with an organization called the Philos Project, one of my favorites. He also uh, helps out at Providence Magazine, and today he is working on pouring concrete for an addition to his house. Luke Moon, man of many talents. Welcome back.
2: Yeah, thank you, Carmen. Yeah, my okay. my, my hobby is uh, is is uh, basically working on my house. So. I know,
0: I love it. So uh, you know, you know, Jim, and he is um, also uh, has a little concrete project going um, here at our house. So the two of you can uh, can get together on that later. Awesome. Yeah, I know. All right. uh, China and Taiwan. Um, So there are so many threads we could pull on this. Why don't you give uh, give people the, you know, the 50,000 foot view?
2: Well, the 50,000 foot view is is China wants Taiwan. China thinks it owns Taiwan. And and that's unfortunately has a lot of support from the average Chinese uh, in China and the U.S. policy towards towards this whole situation is it dates back to basically the you know the the 50s and 60s when you know the 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 people who were in taiwan had been pushed out by the communists and they're like no that's you know we'll, we'll go back we'll 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 take it again it will be ours eventually right and and so there was a it was you know, the, the small island of Taiwan thought that, no, we, we were the actual leaders of China and and the same thing for the people on the mainland, thought they were the true rulers of, of Taiwan. And that has played out continuously until, until today. Uh, the problem is right now we have a fairly aggressive um, uh, China that has – you know, uh, remove democracy out of Hong Kong and, and would likely do something similar out of Taiwan. And Taiwan is, is not recognized as an independent country by the United States, uh, by the United Nations. It could be actually, if it was an independent country, it would be one of the richest countries in the world uh, per capita income. And, you know, it's a major, it's a, it's a major hub for tech, Particularly, chip it's a major uh, manufacturer of, of for for uh, t- chips that go into computers and smartphones and stuff like that and uh, China is being aggressive towards it and it's not clear to me uh, whether the US will really actually end up defending uh, Taiwan if if China decides it wants to take it and it's it's mm-hmm. consistently even this weekend has been uh, very aggressive in in its, as, at least on the rhetoric side, the, the Chinese leadership has been like, no, like, this is, Taiwan's ours and we're going to take it. So, and, and they keep kind of, you know, they keep flying planes over into Taiwanese airspace and, and that kind of stuff. It's really a, it's a mess. It was one of those things I wish if, you know, during the Trump administration, just like he had pulled the Band-Aid off a bunch of other, kind of stuff festering, festering uh, foreign policy matters from, you know, 50 years ago and been like, why are we still doing this? (laughs) And and it would have been great if he recognized China or Taiwan, but he didn't. So here we are with the Biden administration that seems confused about what's happening.
0: And the, um, and the strategic ambiguity is the official position of the United States on the topic of Taiwan, and that is a challenge. So we take advantage of, um, of the relationship that we have with Taiwan uh, in terms of, of economics and uh, supply chain concerns, particularly as you described related to chips, which now everybody's paying attention to. Um, but we don't promise them – any level of support. We have been training their military forces, but in terms of would we back them if the time came? Uh, Taiwan's military is in a very very difficult position right now. Their their defense minister has described this as the grimmest time he's seen in 40 years. They are saying that they would defend themselves if China were to invade. China views it as an effort at quote-unquote reunification. Um, it's it's a very very uh, challenging situation, and I, I didn't want people to be unaware of it because it is one of those that literally could explode over any given night um, as China continues to send warplanes uh, flying over, uh, Th- you know, what, what I would call Taiwanese airspace. But I don't even know if they really have their own airspace because nobody recognizes them as a, um, as a self-standing country. So it's a very, very, uh, right. very and challenging. I mean,
2: thing It would be my, my guess is. If it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen on the opening night of the uh, Olympics, (laughs) right? Like just like the Russians took what the Russians did—they do Crimea or was that at the World Cup? Like
0: yeah, or or was while while the world was paying attention to something? That's exactly right.
2: Right, I think it was Georgia, the country of there was a Olympic Games opening night, and Russia invaded the country of Georgia to take you know the pathway for oil pipeline mm-hmm. never right and so right. It, but it also i mean the other factor here carmen is that uh, the taiwan the the chinese government i mean because of the the economic situation particularly on the on these you know from these major uh you know develop property development companies in china not just the evergrand which was the biggest one that that can't pay its bills. But so far there have been at least five more with, with huge, huge debt loads that are also unable to pay their, their bills, which signals a, a fairly catastrophic. Um, yeah. Basically it wouldn't be on. It wouldn't surprise me if, if you know the property bubble in China popped uh, this last week and, and it, it, it hasn't you know? It's still kind of working its way out, just like when the property uh, bubble popped in the United States. It's the mm-hmm. same kind of thing, you know. It's it's not like, um, I mean, the the Chinese economy is much more, you know, top down and, and controlled, but it it still has significant impact on on a lot of people, jobs, buildings. I mean, that's, that's stuff. It's not like it's just going to go away. Um, and, you know, there's there's other it, – it will have rippling effects through the economy. And so you can imagine a, situ- a situation where, you know, like I said, the world's distracted by Olympic Games openings. At the same time, there's, you know, there's some fairly severe economic uh, hardship hitting the Chinese uh, economy. It would be a be a great time to invade a neighbor, especially one that when when that that's popular amongst your people.
0: Yeah, Uh, we could spend a whole nother hour on China, because when you talk about invasion and the way that one country takes over another, I don't know how many people are aware of how much China owns of U.S. coastlines, of U.S. shipping, of U.S. agriculture, of U.S. farmland, like I don't, I don't know that people know. Like as things go up for sale in the United States of America, China is a buyer standing there, um, ready. So it's an, it's a, it's going to be an interesting conversation going forward for sure. Let's pivot when we come back from the break. Um, let's pivot from China, where we could spend hours of conversation, um, and let's take a take a glance over at Afghanistan and then Israel. We're talking with Luke Moon from the Philos Project, and we'll be right back. Right, we're continuing our conversation with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. Luke, uh, bring us up to date uh, on what's happening in Afghanistan, particularly in relationship uh, to talks with the United States about humanitarian aid.
2: Yeah, this is one of those one of those situations where I just I, I I'm torn, right? Because the you know it turns out that when you uh, you know overrun a country like the Taliban did and you chase out a bunch of people who particularly uh who don't want to be a part of you know a sem- seventh uh century uh totalitarian religious cult then uh you might have a hard time feeding yourself and 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 uh stuff like that and winter's coming And it's predicted that there's massive shortages of food and and fuel and coal, like just it's not like things are not looking up for 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 Afghanistan. And as a result, like, you know, countries around the world, including the U.S., is like, you know, people are going to starve and we don't want those people to starve. And so, you know, maybe we should help. Right, and so there is talks between the Taliban and the United States in terms of allowing for humanitarian aid and you know protecting humanitarian aid corridors and you know, aid workers and and all that sort of stuff and uh I guess it you know or supposedly the the conversation was 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 candid uh you know the us it seems to at least the administration seems to have not forgotten that it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's said in its statement that it's really important now that, you know, you allow girls to go to school and put girls in the government and, or women in the government and, you know, the Taliban, I'm sure is going to roll their eyes and be like, really? But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, that's, that was, uh, so it's a, it's, it's going to be a dire situation, um, you know, one in, in some ways of its own making, right? It's
0: yeah. Like, and one of the know. challenges, one of the challenges I think we face, Luke, is that um, there's just very, very little international um, media present any longer in Afghanistan. And at least the American attention uh, to things around the world uh, tends to lapse pretty quickly <laughs> when there aren't cameras rolling, And so when we can't see it and major networks aren't covering it, we do tend to pivot our attention pretty quickly to what they are showing us, whatever that might be, wherever it might be happening. And so thank you for keeping an eye on what's happening in Afghanistan and continuing to help us understand that situation. Uh, If you missed our conversation yesterday with retired Lieutenant General John Bradley, I'd encourage you to go and grab the podcast from yesterday's show at MyFaithRadio.com. Hey, let's talk about Israel. Um, You and I, you have taken me to the Golan Heights. I didn't even uh, have an appreciation for uh, what it looked like and how strategic it is until I traveled there with you and the Philos Project. So tell us what's going on now on the Golan Heights.
2: Well, under the Trump administration, the U.S. recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And now there's there's talks as Syria, you know, is supposedly being welcomed back into some international community circles. There's talks about, you know, Syria's control over the the Golan Heights. It was originally, I guess, I guess the Golan Heights is theirs and Israel, Israel took it in 1967. And it's one of those things where, you know, the reality on the ground is that Israel is never going to give that back. It is a, it is a strategic hub uh, for, for Israel. There is now uh, Israeli towns on the Golan, Israeli farms on the Golan, and it's a, it's a strategic line that that Israel can can hold pretty easily, uh, and there, it's just it's it's one of those things that, that Israel's never going to get it up. And anybody who's thinking that they will, you know, it it's you know it's a bit it's it you know it's a, it's not going to happen, right? And so there's talks, but I don't. It's not a reality that Israel's going to give that up.
0: When we talk about, um, the, just to give people a little perspective, when we talk about the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, we talk about traveling from, let's say, Jerusalem to Damascus. It's only 150 miles, um, and the Golan Heights is basically smack dab in the middle of it. I mean, that's not necessarily right. the way right. a person would travel, because, right? I mean, you might take a lower road, but the reality is you can see a lot from the Golan Heights
2: yeah well it's a it's it's a heights for one thing, but it's a strategic plateau i mean the, the Syria is on a plateau right and the way that you know if any army that was coming to invade you know Egypt or Egypt going to invade somebody else had to go through the Jezreel valley, which is where you know Armageddon is is the city of Megiddo Armageddon is located right and and they had to go then up on the Golan Heights and on a clear day. You know, from Mount Bental, which I took you to, you can you can see the outskirts of uh, of Damascus. Uh, it's not very often you can, but you can see it. And and it you know it's it's a it's a very strategic place for Israel. And like I said, it's it's um, you know Israel's policy towards you know anything in the in the region is the conflict. Any escalating conflicts is going to take place. Not over the skies of of Israel, right? And so to have a a strategic kind of runway to to make sure that Iran doesn't get any power, uh, in, more power in Syria or you know get weapons up close or get weapons to to Hezbollah, which is which is in the country next door. All of that is is really key to to Israel's. Uh, internal security. And the thing is, is that as countries begin to turn on Jews as well, particularly in Europe, uh, you know, Israel is having to absorb a lot of people every year, people, uh, Jews from around the world move to Israel because it is it is a safe place for them to live and be Jewish. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, a lot of the, the fastest growing number of immigrants from uh, into uh, Israel, it's is called Aliyah. is is from France because hmm. you know the it's Jews are basically uh, can't wear uh, kippas, you know the 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 uh, head covering uh, in and walk down the street without being targeted, without being hit, without being yelled at, and it's just you know you can only do that for so long, and yeah. so there's a lot of immigrants and and you know Israel over the you know, it seems to be the world is heading towards more anti-Semitism, more antagonism towards the Jews, not less. And so I think it's, you know, it's important uh, just in terms of not only a strategic place, but there's got to be places for people to live. And the Golan Heights, I tell you, it's very beautiful. And uh, I would I would I would live there myself. <laughs> um, I I
0: so appreciate our conversations, your perspective, your knowledge of the region, your willingness to sort of take us back and uh, give us not only um, a sense of geography but his- and history but worldview as well. So Luke as always, thank you so much. That's Luke Moon from the oh, Felos project. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. We'll be right back. All right you will remember um, last year the signing of the Abraham Accords. Uh, There is a meeting happening tomorrow in Washington, D.C. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is hosting Israel and the UAE to talk about progress on those uh, bilateral and trilateral accords. So let's be praying for meetings tomorrow related to the Abraham Accords. Uh, That meeting is in Washington, D.C. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.